0: Next up, Gwen Stritter. What uh, does your talk include? A little bit about your background? No. Gwen, uh, Stanford-trained anesthesiologist, was working at Kaiser, <coughs> uh, running up their one of their pain clinics, and um, just found how little Kaiser was 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 providing and doing. Just she just couldn't do it anymore and started, <clears throat> just opened her own uh, patient advocacy sort of, uh, clinical advocacy, but we didn't have a name really, but uh, sort of practice uh, was starting on her own and then and came up to talk to me one day. And then we became uh, friends and collaborators. And um, she's gonna talk to you about her practice of clinical advocacy, which is more focused on breast cancer.
1: Just really grateful to be here to have the opportunity to talk about a subject that is near and dear to my heart. And that is getting information out to those living with breast cancer. And there's really no more important information than how to increase increase your um, your, um, chances of surviving breast cancer. So, chemotherapy increases survival for those with early breast cancer, exclamation point. Now, early breast cancer is stage one or stage two. Usually uh, tumors that are less than two inches in size and less than uh, three or less lymph nodes involved. So that's considered to be early stage breast cancer. And um, whenever they tweak the chemotherapy regimens just a little bit, Oh, it gets all over the, you know, newspapers, TV shows, the internet, you know. Oh, you get, you know, X number of extra weeks of survival with this chemotherapy regimen. So the question is, what does the data really tell us about uh, how that increases breast cancer cure rates? And as you can see here, that uh, for women with early stage breast cancer that are over 50, that uh, they will get an improvement in survival of about 12%. Now, if you go to uh, women who are over uh, under 50, you can see they get a little bit more benefit, about 21%. Now, this data uh, is, comes out of a really uh, a famous study that was done in 1998, where they compared um, chemotherapy regimen versus doing no chemotherapy at all. And so this is the benefit. Now, since then they use a lot uh, newer chemotherapy uh, uh, regimens. Uh, Unfortunately, it's unethical for them to actually compare the new regimens to no chemotherapy at all. But you can go and extrapolate uh, from that data and you can add maybe about two to 4% of uh, uh, survival points with the, the new chemotherapy regimens. Now let's talk about radiation in um, DCIS. Now DCIS is a form of pre-breast cancer. And when women are diagnosed with it, when you go to your oncologist or to your radiation oncologist, the first thing they say is that you need to have radiation because it's going to really decrease your um, recurrence risk for DCIS. So again, let's see what the data says. Well, yeah, it decreases recurrence, but look what it does to survival. Nothing, nothing at all. So this gives you an idea of radiation, uh, chemotherapy, and the benefits that that you get from uh, those conventional approaches. But that begs uh, a couple of questions, looking at this uh, data, and that is, How effective are these conventional approaches when you directly compare them to integrative approaches? And of course, by integrative, we mean adding on things like nutrition, botanicals, exercise, psycho-spiritual, all those uh, other uh, integrative interventions. And how do they compare? with this conventional stuff? And the second question is, are newly diagnosed folks with breast cancer, are they informed of this information? Unfortunately, the answer to the, uh, well, the answer to the first question is fortunately that actually integrative approaches stack up very well compared to conventional approaches, meeting and often exceeding the uh, results that you get in terms of breast cancer uh, cure rates. Unfortunately, um, the newly diagnosed with breast cancer are not given uh, this information. So clearly this is a problem. What's the solution to this uh, problem? Well, Michael Lerner had this great idea. He said, you know, let's make up a a fact sheet. It's well-designed, easy to read, so that those with breast cancer will have exactly this kind of information, looking at conventional and really focusing on integrative approaches. So he invited Mark to uh, to um, make up this uh, fact sheet, and Mark, knowing that uh, my special interest in breast cancer clinical advocacy, asked me to join the effort. And so um, <clears throat> we wrote up a preliminary nine-point evidence-based uh, 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 a fact sheet. And so, um, actually, just this weekend, we had, uh, 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 or last weekend, we had this wonderful group of nine women come up. All these women are living with breast cancer and they got their hands on the preliminary sheet and they gave us feedback on what they wanted to see, how they wanted to see it. And actually, um, one of the changes I did make to the uh, uh, fact sheet is uh, to change the way we visually present this information and that was based directly on input that I got from the focus group. So um, what follows now is just giving you a little uh, taste of uh, the information that we're going to be presenting in this uh, fact sheet, Uh, a little preview as it were. One thing to remember as we go through this information is that this is not an exhaustive, you know, kind of uh, review of all the medical literature as relates to each integrative intervention. So basically what Mark and I decided was to pick one or two of the most representative uh, uh, clinical studies and then present them on the, uh, the fact sheet. So, what integrative uh, approaches, what, do they, what effect do they have on breast cancer? Well, here's a very interesting little graph here. So it looks like uh, just by... Um, uh, Minimizing alcohol in your diet, you can really decrease your uh, uh, risk of dying of breast cancer. Now, this study, they looked at uh, uh, women who were um, drinking the equivalent of one drink a day. It didn't matter whether it was uh, wine or beer or alcoholic spirits. That uh, women who had about one drink a day or more, that on average, that they um, had a 30% uh, decrease in their survival rate. Um, Even more interesting, there was a subset that they looked at and these are women who had on average a half a drink a day. So maybe, you know, two, three drinks a week. And that uh, group of women, when compared to the women who had no alcohol intake at at all, the women who had uh, on average a half a drink uh, per day actually improved their breast cancer survival by about 30%. So this was a little subset analysis. We need to do more work to uh, uh, actually uh, 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 make sure that these numbers are indeed correct, but I I thought that was interesting and you would find it interesting too. So you can see that uh, fish oil also, um, 25% improvement in survival rates with fish oil. Uh, this is um, really you know, the equivalent of having one or two servings of salmon a week or adding fish oil to your diet, so that is significant. Exercise, look at that, 40%. Um, that is uh, 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 with women who uh, basically did three hours of moderate physical exercise uh, per week. And so that is like fast walking, something like that. So that's all you needed to do. And look at the improvement in your cure rate that you'll get just from fast walking three hours a week. The women who did five hours, uh, uh, did more than three hours, up to five hours actually did, did much better, even than 40%. Here we have diet and um, I didn't have room to Put this in, but a specifically low-fat diet. And here you can also see that you get a significant improvement in breast cancer survival with a low-fat diet. Now, the important thing to remember about this study is that this is just a very generic low-fat diet. They defined it by anyone who had 20 percent or less calories um, from fat in their diet. Now, of course, you know the way uh, conventional researchers work. They're, they they're always like you know ten or fifteen years behind the integrative uh, practitioners. So we all know. Well, our first question is: How did people who took in um, low fat only from vegetable sources versus those from animal sources? How did they do? And if the women who did um, low fat diet based on animal fats only, uh, how did they do? And um, uh, that study unfortunately does not exist yet. But I. Would imagine that they would get even better uh, survival. So uh, vitamin D. So vitamin D is also another one, and specifically, I'm talking about vitamin D3 here. And so um, there was. Um, <clears throat> A very good study it was a 2009 study that was in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, and basically what they showed was that um, women who had a, um, a vitamin D3 blood level that was in the deficient range, which means in um, conventional terms that it's uh, less than 20 nanograms per ml. Uh, So if you have a vitamin D3 test and the the result is less than 20, then you're considered vitamin D deficient. And um, women who were uh, sufficient, so in other words, their levels were higher than um, 20, um, more in the 30 range, that uh, women who were sufficient had a 55% improvement in survival compared to women who were deficient in vitamin D3. This is huge, man. If you could put this in a separate pill and put a patent on it, do you know how many billions of dollars you would be making so again, the old adage, uh, conventional research is about you know, 15 years behind um, integrative uh, practice. Uh, the um, actual levels of uh, optimal benefit from vitamin D3 turn out to be much higher than 20, and actually many practitioners are shooting for, for the you know 60 to 80 range. So finally, we have an interesting um, uh, paper on social support. And Penny um, did an excellent job of really presenting a lot of data of how psycho-spiritual approaches make a difference in terms of surviving uh, a diagnosis of breast cancer. Um, So when I heard the data talking about, you know, social support improves breast cancer survival, I got all excited and I thought, oh boy, I bet it'll be 20%, 30%. Well, guess what, folks? It was 70%. I was like, what, 70%? And it turned out it was a very interesting study. Um, What they did is that uh, this was a 2010 study from the Journal of uh, Psycho-Oncology. And what they did is that they um, basically compared uh, women who increased their social um, uh, network contacts, and so by uh, social network contacts, I mean those who were uh, family and close friends. And they compared them to those who did not increase or decrease their social contacts. And the ones that increase their social contacts are the ones that have this huge benefit in their survival rate of quite a bit of interest to me, the people who in, um, increase the number of people in their social network, they had no survival benefit. It was only increased contact with uh, friends and families. So um, <clears throat> it's hard to believe that just using these non-toxic approaches can have such a huge uh, uh, effect on your breast cancer survival, but I tell you, I've got the data that proves it, and that data, those references will be right on the breast cancer fact sheet, so anybody who wants to look at that, that those uh, medical uh, uh, research papers themselves are able to do that. So, um, <clears throat> so let's kind of do a brief recap here. On this side, you see the uh, breast cancer uh, improved survival rates, with conventional approaches, and here are some of the alternative approaches that we've been talking about today. Pretty impressive, isn't it, when you put it up side by side like that. Now, there is a real glaring problem with this research that Michael McCulloch uh, brought up in the previous talk, and that is each one of these integrative studies. They only looked at doing one thing at a time. And so for this study on diet, they looked just at women who did low-fat diet and compare them to those who didn't. But what about people who do all these things? They do the diet. They do the exercise. They do the psycho-oncology interventions. What if you did all of that at one time? Well. It would be lovely if I could say that there have been some really large trials that were able to look at all this, but we do have some data that do uh, guide us into that uh, 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 information. Um, And this is some data from Keith Block, who may still be here. Um, And this is a study that he published in 2009 This was on uh, women with metastatic breast cancer. And so uh, one thing that folks have to remember is that whatever works for metastatic breast cancer (laughs) is gonna work for um, um, women with primary or non-metastatic breast cancer even better. So so this uh, applies to both groups. And basically he had the great idea, let's look at how people who come to my integrative uh, clinic and outside of uh, Chicago, And let's compare the whole integrative program, the diet, the exercise, psycho-oncology, all that stuff, to people who just have conventional uh, treatment. And what you see is that the people who had conventional treatment on average lived about uh, 20 months with metastatic breast cancer. Compare this with the whole integrative program, 38 months. So you get a real significant 18 months, on average, of increased survival in the toughest cases with metastatic breast cancer, uh, using the full integrative approach. I mean, imagine what this data would look like if we were doing people um, uh, right after their breast cancer diagnoses. So one important uh, point I have to make about the slide is that this was um, published in 2009, and the chemotherapy and integrative protocols used um, in this uh, study are, you know, kind of dated now. And uh, if Keith Block were to do the um, uh, a study today, then um, uh, I'm sure we would see lots of improvement on uh, the conventional side, and uh, correspondingly, even more uh, improvement on the integrative side.
2: Pardon me. Mm-hmm. you don't mind, i asking. Right? No, go ahead. Why, why would you think that in three years there would be a significant improvement in um, in um, conventional? In
1: three years, because the um, chemotherapy regimens that were published in this paper are actually from the 1990s and kind of uh, 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 mid-early 2000s. So right. yes, David.
3: The for integrated, is that
1: integrated care alone, or- Oh, good question. When I say integrative care, I'm always talking about um, uh, using um, diet, exercise, and uh, those integrative approaches on top of a conventional program. Generally, alternative uh, regimens are considered to be the ones that you use outside of or or in uh, place of conventional. So some critics would say, well maybe that's just Keith Block. And maybe Keith and Penny just have their little magic that they work outside of Chicago and that's not gonna be replicated anywhere else. But what do we just have this excellent talk from Michael McCulloch and his Pine uh, Street, those excellent clinician researchers, they did their own data and just a brief recap, stage four lung cancer patients. Here is Pine Street, one-year survival, 82%, compared to a 16 or 17% in people who have a conventional uh, uh, approach only. And uh, and then I always have to say, I think that this was such a stroke of analytical genius that uh, they also looked at the uh, patients that they started out and then sent them out to other integrative programs, so boom. So it's not just Keith. And it's not just uh, uh, Michael McCulloch and Michael Brofman, uh, is that uh, basically these integrative protocols do work? Now, there's differences between these protocols, you know, the Pine Street people use a, a, a Chinese medicine backbone to their integrative program, but I can guarantee you that they're gonna tell people to minimize alcohol, that they're gonna make sure they have a you know, low fat, healthy diet, that they're gonna be getting exercises, that they're dealing with stress. So all these programs that deal with just basic integrative um, uh, interventions uh, with only, uh, well, not minor uh, 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 differences between them, but uh, despite the differences in program, we're seeing all of them consistently show us improvements in survival. So the point is um, putting together a complete integrative oncology treatment saves a lot more lives than just relying on the conventional approach. And... This is a recap of the things that I just talked about today. Now, um, Mark Renecker and I have volunteered our time to um, put information like this into a fact sheet that's going to go out to um, any woman newly diagnosed with breast cancer. And this is just a taste of it. We're also going to be including information about metformin, beta blockers, aspirin, melatonin. There's going to be a lot of good information in there. Uh, Hopefully, within one or two months, we will Finalize this fact sheet, and uh, if anybody wants an advance copy, I'll be showing my email address at the end. You know, just write it down. I'll be happy to make sure you get a copy.
2: Yes. I, I, are, are you saying that when this um, fact sheet is is ready? It's- you're going to try to get it into like all the major cancer centers and when a, when a woman is diagnosed, she's going to be handed this? Well, <laughs> uh,
1: I don't think that the oncologists will like to see uh, a graph that looks like this around their offices, what are the chances you think that they'll allow that to go into? So no, actually we're gonna go, um, of course, Commonwealth is going to be handing them out. We have uh, some people like the Breast Cancer Connections of Palo Alto and the um, Cancer Support Community throughout the Bay Area who are really interested. I'll post this up on my website. And so um, I know that we're running out of time, so I'm gonna um, just, just flip forward here because I got to talk about a project of my own. And this is a project that came out of a conference that I was at uh, last year, the Society of Integrative Oncology. And uh, I heard some excellent research, but um, it was all done kind of in the in the test tubes. And I wondered, well, will this work with women? And boy, it'll be eight or 10 years before we find out because of the way they do clinical trials. And then I uh, listened to an excellent Michael McCulloch lecture who was talking about uh, his propensity score. And he was talking about new statistical methods. And so I thought to myself, well, if we can get a whole bunch of women with metastatic breast cancer and train them to enter their information onto a database and update it once a month, then it'll take maybe a year, two years, for us to get very valuable data on exactly what is working to improve survival For women with metastatic breast cancer. And, um, so I thought, yeah, well, maybe, you know, we could do this. So I asked us, you know, put out the word. And before I knew it, I had 30 women who just immediately signed on and said, okay, I want to be involved in this. And so, um, we had a, um, a teleconference. And what we, uh, uh, asked them, or what I asked them was basically, what kind of things do you want to look at? When um, we're looking at breast cancer survival, what do you what are you interested in researching? They came up with a lot of interesting ideas. How about, you know, how about blood type diets? How does that affect survival? Curcumin. They wanted to know about mind-body techniques, iodine supplementation, occupational exposure. How does that affect outcomes in breast cancer? How about dental history, you know, getting your almagams removed or getting root canals? Um, and then, of course, I had my own little favorites. There's a Lasanti protocol where they're using metformin, uh, NAC, N-acetylcysteine, and um, hydroxychloroquine, uh, anti malarial and putting it together because in um, Preclinical studies, it just is totally amazing how it absolutely shuts down and reverses cancer growth. It's a low-toxicity protocol. I've already had some people I work with on it. Boy, how well does it work? Um, Also, there's a newer protocol called the Retchia protocol. It's an immunotherapy protocol where they use uh, IL-2, interleukin-2, and they use that with Accutane to uh, uh, provide really extended survival for those with metastatic breast cancer. So as you can see, um, this kind of database could be huge. And we could start looking at the stuff that we're interested in. And we don't have to wait for the conventional researchers to decide, oh, well, we're gonna study this you know, alternative technique. So um, any of you who are interested in being involved in this project, uh, we've just gotten the, the go ahead from John Pascarden at UCSF and we've got the uh, statistics that uh, are going to be able to take this mountain of data and really provide us uh, significant, statistically significant information on things that improve survival. So this is my email address. And if you're interested, give me a call or email. Thank you.
0: I do wish to point out that um, we've been meeting for four days, and normally, usually about after the third day, everybody is just, you know, like, oh, I just let's just go walk on the beach, you know. Maybe tonight, instead of having that keynote presentation, you know, I don't know, let's just have like a little, I don't know, party or something. <clears throat> um, this group has been remarkable in that, <clears throat> as you can tell by Gwen, they've just gained energy and enthusiasm from doing this. It's just been incremental. It's been kind of a wonderful thing to watch. Thank you, Gwen. And the last thing on the agenda here is um, <coughs> something that maybe won't have an endpoint as much as uh, something that would just be, at this point, um, a very, very still, fresh, Um, read on what it was that we did over these four days. And uh, Sandy, I'm gonna leave it to you to put forth kind of what we think we did and learned and uh, would love to have thoughts and feedback from you about what we should should do about this. I
4: know we're
5: at the end of uh, a multi-hour conference. It's really been fascinating, all the different topics that we've touched upon. So I'm just going to um, give a summary of uh, the conference members' feedback this morning on what they thought were the high points of the conference. And after I do that, I'd love to turn it over to the audience to give us feedback about what your thoughts are on this and, and how we all work together to uh, help everyone really become a self-advocate. I think when we distilled everything, we felt that we wanted people to feel that they could advocate for themselves. And the medical system um, sometimes has some, some barriers to that and working collaboratively, we can figure out how to work through that. One idea that we talked about is research. Is there research on self-advocacy or clinical advocacy? And there is some out there. The group in general did not seem to have a strong thrust for research, except Michael McCulloch, who was absolutely fabulous and holding that part of the conference for us. But what we came down to is that we thought it would be good to write a review of what we discussed at the conference and and have it published, perhaps in Keith Block's journal. And we could write a summary of uh, different conversations that we had and different topics that we had, and then we could take that to other places in our communities and try to use that to empower what we're trying to do. We talked about the range of clinical advocacy. Is it disease specific? Does it relate to oncology, cardiac disease, integrative medicine, hospice, Chinese medicine, children or adults? We talked about the different facets of advocacy, medical, emotional, financial, societal, We talked that healthcare staff and clients must be congruent on their goals and methods, and that there must be a mutual respect to be able to move that goal forward. Will Kennedy talked about hospice and palliative care. What was fascinating about his system is that 25% of patients are discharged from hospice to go out and live their lives. We had a couple different lectures on both professional and layperson clinical advocacy training and how that's done. And that's something that I'd love to see garnered and teaching as many people as possible. And one thing we didn't really talk about, because it's usually adults who are trained to do this, but do we try and target youth Kids in high school who are learning independence, um, taking responsibility for themselves, would that be an interesting population to look at? Um, We had two people talking about advocating for family and friends. Uh, One woman who started Plain Tree really came to do this out of her uh, own uh, feelings of being challenged within our medical system. And she had experienced uh the medical system in Argentina and felt that that there were parts here that were cold and very distant for her and she didn't want to experience that again. And so she created a, a model of hospitals that that is really thriving today. Someone else talked about uh um a partner who has Breast cancer and how their family uh, has dealt with it, how their community deals with it, um, and it really brought so much education um, to the physicians, workers, uh, social workers who are in our group. Uh, we discussed advocacy for the underserved. A lot of what we are talking about only certain certain numbers of people are going to have access to, but really probably the people who need advocacy the most are those who do not have access to it. So how do we create a way to do that? Um, And uh, one idea is really to try and garner um, people just to help other people. Um, And we may try and do that in the Bay Area here uh, over the next year. Uh, Ray Chang, Talk and Gwen Stritter and Michael McCulloch and Dwight McGee talked about um, uh, clinical trials, compassionate use, and we've got a little flavor of that from learning about dendritic therapy this morning. We also talked about how in this field there are no regulations. There are no rules, there are no yeses, there are no noes. And that's probably something that we should have conversations about. Um, But since this is the beginning of the field, we really have the ability to to, um, set up what we're going to do for now. We also want to think about codes of ethics and uh, how do we feel about that and how do we communicate that to other people. Some doctors um, said that they would like to have interpractitioner collaboration, whether that is through websites or, or um, list servers or other internet resources that people can have access to and we can share information. Um, one person said that they thought surfing was an important topic of this <laughs> conference. <laughs> <laughs> But it was in honor to Mark and really the importance of walking the walk and that physicians and nurses and uh, social workers need to take care of themselves um, as part of the model to be able to take care of other people. And that's something in medicine that's not done regularly. And so um, to create a healthier system that we do need to, to focus on that as well. So with that. I'd love to open it up to questions, thoughts, discussions. If you uh, were asked to uh, say in a sentence, what clinical evidence would be? I was trying to explain to friends what I was going to. What? So uh, how... Before the conference, we define clinical advocacy, or a clinical advocate is anyone, regardless of their uh, professional training or credentials, who works to improve the clinical care of someone. That person is a clinical advocate. And we had discussions during the conference of, are those the right words? And different people had different thoughts on that. Should we involve the word, Healthcare sh- navigator, patient, client, and we did not come to any consensus about that. And it would be great to hear people's thoughts on that. I think it would help help professionals in trying to define that.
6: Well, I guess just how do you define clinical then?
5: So clinical is um, the practice of improving one's overall health
6: okay so it's interesting because one of the things i'm really interested in i kind of consider a kind of cross-cultural communication mm-hmm. and um i am by training a medical librarian so i've worked a lot mm-hmm. with um medical professionals then i've also had a, a patient experience i've had this immersive patient experience both uh, from my family members and myself and one of the things i feel is that when people go into the hospital it's like there's, you know, like when you go to another country, you kind of expect them to speak a different language. Mm-hmm. But you don't really necessarily expect that when you go into the hospital. And I think that clinicians and patients are not aware that they're really speaking different languages and they don't understand the words that the other people are using.
5: That's an excellent point. So what, what words sound like their common speak.
6: Well, it, when I think of clinical, I think of what happens in a, a clinic or a hospital setting or, you know, I, I don't think of it as applied to, like,
2: the rest of my life. Hmm. So maybe medical advocacy makes more sense than clinical
6: advocacy. I mean, I'm I don't know, know what exactly what saying. word, but just the way you define clinical, I would not have thought of that definition.
5: Okay. How does the word medical feel to people?
6: It doesn't feel holistic enough. You're looking at just the disease. they
1: are
7: not looking at the
6: spiritual, emotional, and the whole cycle part of it.
1: Okay.
2: How about patient advocacy?
5: Okay. How does patient feel? It's a person. It's not a people's family. Yeah. exclusive. Yeah. Okay. What about integrative advocacy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> integrated self-advocacy. Integrated
6: mm-hmm. self-advocacy? You know, integrated is sounds very interesting, but it also so many people if you say integrated <coughs> they say, Why
1: did you lose your hair? You know, in other words, they don't understand the distinction that you brought up between Complementary, alternative, integrative—you know what
7: I mean. They think it means care alone.
2: Integrative maybe alienates the the um, Western medicine side. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. I mean, but I, and on the other hand, I think that I think for each of these different individuals, a different medical advocacy
5: fits for some,
1: and you know something else fits for
6: someone else, so I don't know. I don't know
1: but, I think,
5: but I think the point of trying to to make it user-friendly for everybody is a great goal. How about health advocacy? How does everyone feel about health? How
6: about, how about health empowerment <laughs> or something? Health empowerment advocacy. Well, i Oh, so you see yourself okay. advocating for everyone, right? Okay. Or, or everyone who's in a health care setting? Or, or is this primarily for, we've been talking about oncology a lot. So I mean, yes. it's either something that you might need to like narrow down more or actually, because if you get it
4: too broad, so I, I understand why clinical is kind of an attempt to kind of narrow it more. hmm you know, when I'm thinking of this, I'm thinking about what I'm talking to my patients about in this setting, which is, which is making sure that every decision they make about their health is an educated decision. Okay. So it's really educated decision advocacy, which is way too wordy, but any way to, to maybe focus that would be good. Informed? In-
5: mm-hmm. Informed. Informed. <laughs> So there's something called informed consent, which we could have a whole conversation, a whole other meeting on. I'm (laughs) not reading it, but I'm signing. Right,
4: (laughs) right. I think informed health advocacy is very nice because it's really it's not it's not uh, shadowing of any level in my mind. Mm -hmm. It's not shadowing any practitioner in the medical community. Mm-hmm. MDs, NDs, rights practitioners, acupuncturists, whomever. And that's that's part of the goal is, is informed health advocacy. Do you know do you know the difference between where you lay whether or not chemotherapy or isotope is your is your best outcome?
5: Okay. How Okay. Let me ask. The, let me ask. In general, raise your hand if that's com- if that's a comfortable label for you. Health education advocacy. Informed, informed, informed health advocacy. Okay. Okay.
6: Okay. <laughs> what What about, about the so word so advocacy? So. That's, uh, the, well, because coming to this, because I. What I'm hearing is kind of your advocate, you're talking about health education, it's kind of like working with the people who are getting treated, you know, so that they can make better informed decisions. But, like, coming to it, I thought, oh, advocacy, this is really great, you know, that it would be a two-way road, and then actually, you know, the integrated practitioners, like, advocating <laughs> with the health, the oncologists, the health care providers, you know, on behalf of the patients for, like, you know, we need more humane treatment, you guys... You know, so so I see advocacy more broadly than just, you know, helping someone to become a health advocate or something, that 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 it has to be on the other side too, with the providers.
5: To go along with that, when you said you talked about We're getting off the topic of the title of the... uh, But um, when you talked about who do we outreach to, and you talked about maybe high school students as they learn to be self-reliant, and um, I was thinking, what about the surgeons and the oncologists? That's who we should be outreaching to. And and you shake your head (laughs) as if that's not possible. But
2: it is not possible. But it is. Is that what you're 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 hoping for?
3: It is
5: yes, and I and I um I was actually going to ask Gwen a question um, about your fact sheet if if there were a couple and I can think of a f- couple people medical oncologists to take it to and say what do you think let's look at this together let's look at these papers together and have a study session with them and see what. What came of that?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent idea. I would imagine um, when I do try to discuss this with, uh, with oncologists, they're just incredibly busy. They um, don't have the time or really the interest to learn this. And the way I kind of envision the um, fact sheet working is that the women get all excited about it and bring it into their doctors. But that's going to be a
2: self-selected group of women, and that's the problem maybe you um, know, people in an underserved community are not going to be the ones who are going online looking specifically for that because they haven't, I mean, they're not fortunate enough to be able to, you know, be hearing this right now, so wouldn't it be great if their oncologists, you know, if somehow you could get to their oncologists or somebody could get to them and at some point, you know, you could work towards standardizing it so that it would be something that would go out to you know, to just rest everyone, no matter where they died now, you know. Here's the stupid thing from the, from the American Cancer Society that really gives you hardly any information that you could use, a booklet, and then, <laughs> and here's It's <something. laughs> well, easy enough to
1: do, and, and the worst that will happen is that, you know, many oncologists will just look at it and throw it away, but there will be maybe a few who will look at that and pay attention, when they start getting better survival rates than their, than their colleagues, and maybe their colleagues will start looking at it. So I think your, your idea has a lot of validity uh, uh, to it, and I will have to reconsider my, my idea
4: of not <laughs> the I, yeah. I, would, I would say piggybacking on that, a place to start or to think about starting would be oncology fellowship programs, to start with those who are learning the practice from the beginning and integrate that into their training programs, so that the next generation of oncologists will start to think about that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would add to that too, that most oncologists that I work with in collaborative care, oftentimes their patients, and I don't think this is intentional, but oftentimes their patients feel stonewalled by uh, their lack of education on vitamin D by their lack of education on previous things. you know, if you go to any, um, oftentimes my experience is that at UW Medical School that in a lot of conventional conferences that I'll attend, the there's a chuckle about, well, you could try a diet and lifestyle, but you know, that's not gonna work. And it's in part because, um, in part because they're not necessarily, in my mind, ready to learn how to do that effectively. And oncologists are, are, are doctors and practitioners that do have intention. And their intention is, 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 um, is for the outcome of their patients, even though perhaps the personality characteristic to have some folks walk may seem different. we see that in integrated and alternative communities as well. So I think having, some, having a means in which an oncologist could actually say, I can actually speak to vitamin D. Instead of saying I can't speak to that, and stonewall their patients, because then their patients have a us and them, and then they're in the center on something as simple as vitamin D. Vitamin D is pretty basic. You know, we're not asking to educate oncologists on on high doses of IVC. You know, but vitamin D. You know, that's some really good data. You guys did an excellent job in picking in picking the papers that are are valid papers to say this is how you can actually discuss vitamin D. And oncologists may actually be open to that. And I think that catching them early is an important time and catching them maybe in the CEU. Catching them if you're so bold to do, you know, some of their larger CEU trainings for a half hour or an hour, well, an hour or whatever to say, let's talk about fish oils. Let's talk about that say the just yeah. came out about fish oils being bombed for cancer. Let's talk about what we see. So at least they're educated because they get bombarded with... You know, in in the field of oncology, are very, very, very smart patients that are are doing exactly what we've been talking about. They're Mm -hmm. trying to navigate their own way, and it's not... But I think that's exactly the problem, that they're
1: so inundated with so much information that, you know, one other conference on what is this, you know, what was it that they were calling a a key block when he was talking? They called him Dr. Uh, Doctor Sprouts, you know, people uh, doctors are so busy. They, there's so many um, continuing education, uh, you know, kind of approaches that they do take this attitude. This very dismin- dis- dismiss attitude towards Doctor Sprouts. So if you were to have like a a um, uh, like a big uh, 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 talk, that it would be poorly um, I think, attended. But I like the idea of just you know getting that information out to uh, oncologists.
2: Um, maybe
5: in a different format where or you just can pick your the battles. Mm-hmm. Right. right. What? Just pick your battles. There's sound bites that we all have as busy doctors. So often um, uh, drug representatives will come and they will supply lunch and they will talk about their drug and then there'll be something that the department talks about. What if there was someone and I don't know if I'm not going to name names, but we have had wonderful food for the past two and a half days. What if someone like the person who who can prepare food that tastes like this prepares food, we we go uh, to lunch at particular hospitals, we prepare the food, we talk about it. We have to think what's the interest, how do we how do we lure people into to really having some pleasure in this? Yeah. I mean isn't
6: it that great food? I know at San Francisco generally you can grab meals and just offering burritos. Oh, oh you know, it's like Chinese doing. food that uh, yeah, is just not it's not food. But if you're not
5: having time to even go to lunch, you can go to lunch. The grand right, but I, I think there are ways to think about what yeah. what might attract people in, what might be a learning experience for them without saying, I'm trying to um, show you something different. Rather, let me allow you to experience something different and presenting in a way that doesn't threaten one's sense of self in these situations?
4: I can tell that there's a couple ways to get physicians to go to lunch,
5: food, and um, CME credits. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> Good. Uh, and generally make it free. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Lunch Free. <laughs> make it free, yeah. make it lunch oh. or yeah. meal. Yeah. And wow. make it, and CME credits, so you get credit for going. Good enough, you're a right. doctor, Yeah. 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 Oh, great.
3: great. So there that's you how you get
5: doctors to go to stuff. Free food and credit. Great. And if it's really good, you pause. Yes. Um, or maybe a
7: pause with it. Yeah, I'm struck by uh, the parallels in this conversation and the conversations that I've been part of in the environmental health sciences for the last mm-hmm. 25 years about how to integrate what we know about... Uh, uh, environmental health factors into uh, medical consciousness and practice. Um, and it's it's a strategic challenge. Um, and uh, there may be real value in having conversations with uh, people in other disciplines who have gone through this, who mm-hmm. have tried to figure out what kinds of strategies work for integrating new ideas and Practices into clinical care into clinical medicine because right now it's a lot about integrated oncology but actually I think it's much broader um, and there are a lot of people who've had a lot of experience trying to do it and, and can probably uh, have also had a lot of failures uh, and and we can learn from each other about this um, so that that's one thought uh, and and the one other comment I wanted to make was. Um, this issue of, of the, the, the quality of evidence that is necessary in order to affect clinical practice uh, comes up in spades in the of health sciences. We don't have any randomized controlled trials about uh, feed uh, mercury to these pregnant women and not to these pregnant women and see what happens to their babies, right? Yeah. Or lead. Uh, we have observational studies that tobacco smoke or mercury or lead or pesticides for example uh, we have observational studies in nutrition uh, but we don't have randomized control trials very often there's an effort going on at uh, UCSF right now in the program for reproductive health in the environment in which is a concentrated organized effort to try to figure out how to take data from the kinds of evidence that we have in environmental health sciences and translated into clinical practice where we've had this long tradition of working with randomized clinical trials and i suspect that a, a conversation with those folks at that program for reproductive health and the environment at ucsf would be very fruitful because they're struggling with it but but if, if figmat actually done some publishing in this area to figure out how to how to do this in a, in a systematic way to evaluate evidence that doesn't fall into the, the categories that, that Michael was talking about earlier. Yes. So there are a couple of, uh, of, of suggestions about how to learn from what some of the others have already I think that's
5: a fantastic idea. We can really benefit from what's already been learned and try and piggyback off of that to where we want to go. Thank you.
0: Just, uh, to maybe bring uh, our public forum to closure, uh, but but not without asking Michael Lerner something, um, who has uh, come back to us um, this afternoon, and you know we're struggling with what do you call this, and uh, <clears throat> I do want to say that. It was really very simple, the, the idea of clinical advocacy is a name that Gwen and I pretty much came up with. It was just the idea that it was clinicians doing advocacy work with patients. And it just to, to somewhat differentiate it, I, I should tell you this, if you, if you go online and PubMed or what have you and, and look under patient advocacy, mostly it deals with legal issues. Advocacy is largely a legal word. Um, If you look under health advocacy, it doesn't get you much further. And there's very few citations. You'll find almost no clinical citations under patient advocacy, health advocacy, medical advocacy, clinical advocacy. It's uh, something as yet in truth unnamed. And what 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 I'm resonating on is that, you know, this amazing organization of Plain Tree, for instance, the first question out of people's mouths is, what's plane tree? What does it mean? And it's very similar to if I say, oh, I'm going up to common wheel. What's Commonweal? What does that mean? And there can be an advantage to something which you have to explain. It already engenders a deeper discussion. So it, it may be that this process is part of the process that we actually need to be engaged in right now. You know, when Gwen talking about, you know, chemotherapy and radiation therapy and, you know, the problems from those, great benefits also, but the problems from those. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, here Michael Lerner started this amazing thing called healthcare without harm. <clears throat> you know, that just went viral and got mercury out of hospitals like boom, like that. And you know, one, I, one of my teachers was a guy named Ivan Illich in uh, uh, Cuernavaca, Mexico, who, at the, who wrote this amazing book called Medical Nemesis. And he talked about physicians as iatricrats, that they cause illness almost as, a, as an institution unto themselves. And it's apt. And I'm not saying that that we need to <laughs> report all the chemotherapists to healthcare without harm and say, well, you did it with mercury, um, you know, somehow f- fix this, make it better, have less people injured, uh, needlessly, when, when we have this amazing evidence that all these other things help in terms of exercise and, and, and that actually help chemotherapy be safer, have, be less toxic. So um, with that daunting challenge, I do want to ask Michael to come forward and just say a few words and help us close this thing down.
3: I have that feeling that exactly the right people are in the room right now. Um, uh, you know what, Mark Reniker and his buddies put together over the last four days was really extraordinary. and. I'm so glad that we had a chance to share some of it with our friends. Um, I have this enormous sense of, of hope about what is going on. Um, last night, um, Dwight McKee and Keith Block uh, did this little show together. Uh, Mark called it Dueling Banjos. but. Uh, and, and they just talked, the t- subject theoretically was novel uh, interventions or novel supplements for cancer. And they were just kind of riffing off each other, and at the end of it, it was astonishing. None of us could understand it, but it was totally <laughs> astonishing. So at the end of it, Mark gets up and says, you know, I gotta say, and you know, Mark knows a lot, he said, I gotta say I didn't understand half of what you guys were saying. He said, but I'm so glad you understand it. And then he said, do you know the story about how somebody came up to Eric Clapton and said to him, how does it feel to be the greatest guitarist in the world? And Clapton reflected for a moment and he said, I don't know, ask Prince. (laughs) So, you know, like, uh, Dwight and Keith were like that last night. You know, just, I mean, the whole retreat, the whole time was like that. There's so many, and you got to see a bunch of the amazing uh, folks who were here. But when I look back on when I entered the river and cancer, which was about 30 years ago, um, and... You know, at that time, my mentor, Phil Lee, told me that if I was to look into integrative therapies, I would destroy my career and destroy commonweal. And um, he was kind enough to support me, even though I decided to do that crazy thing, because at that point, anything outside of the mainstream was considered total quackery. That was the deal 30 years ago. and. So, you know, this room is filled with a group of people who were willing to take those chances with their careers. And um, and lo and behold, 30 years later, um, some version of integrative oncology has made its way into the mainstream. Now, usually that's massage and qigong and, you know, you know, the soft stuff. But right behind the soft stuff is... Um, all the evidence that uh, we've heard today, uh, the astonishing evidence, uh, Penny's talk, uh, Gwen's talk, you know, just the astonishing evidence of the power of these interventions. And so it can't be kept secret forever because uh, just like the HIV activists, breast cancer activists are not shy people. They are not shy people. And so um, I believe this is going to happen, and I believe that uh, you got a taste of it here. Um, I also want to say, for those of you who don't know Ted Shetler, the science director for the collaborative on health and the environment, and, and also the science director of the Science and Environmental Health Network. And what Ted and I are working on, and um, do it through Che Integrative Health, one of our lists, is a really deep sense that as we understand environmental health more deeply, that what becomes very clear is that different people get the same disease for different reasons and that the same uh, things in different people, the same stressors can cause different diseases. And so this, Ted calls this the ecological paradigm of health, but we also call it complexity theory. But no matter what you call it, what we're coming to understand is the unfathomable complexity of health-environmental interactions. And so, given that that's true, there are several things that follow from that. One is that integrative medicine is the exact medicine for complexity theory or the ecological paradigm of health. There is a perfect fit between the complexity of the environment and the different ways it causes the same different people to get the same diseases, and the differential assessment of what may work for different people. But the good news, both about the complexity in the environment and the complexity of individual uh, uh, clinical realities, is that if you take the simple things, if you take diet, exercise, stress reduction physical, emotional, mental, spiritual well-being, and move in those directions, you can't tell exactly where it's going to improve the outcome, but somewhere in the system it will improve an outcome. And so that's true at the individual level, at the clinical level, and it's absolutely true at the public health level. We can't tell exactly what happens if we clean up the air, clean up the water, clean up food. We can't tell exactly what happens because of complexity. But we know that if you remove stress and enhance nourishment and nurturance, you get improved resilience, you get improved health, and everything works better. And so uh, uh, Brian Bausch, who was the first medical director at Commonwealth and who was here for the weekend also. We were talking about this, and, and so there's this important and I think very hopeful point that none of us have to absorb all of the complexity that you've heard about here today in order to walk away from here with a sense that there's something that we can do tomorrow. And what we can do tomorrow and wherever we are in the river is to move that next step toward... Good food, good diet, good exercise, good stress reduction, and whatever else it is that we are drawn to, meaning in life, love, you know? Finding our way toward better patterns of loving. Rachel Remond talks about the purpose of life being to grow in wisdom and learning to love better. And I've always thought that's a really good summary of it. And I think that that skill in growing in wisdom about who we are and why we're here and what we want to do with these precious years that we have, and then learning to love better, love ourselves, love the people we care about, um, that those things are uh, what make a life worth living, that it, it nourishes us, it nourishes the people we live, it supports our communities. So... So I'm unbelievably grateful that that Mark and and his colleagues brought this amazing gathering here. I hope this isn't the last time. I hope it comes back. Uh, And I'm grateful that exactly the right people are in the room and that uh, uh, we are part of a community that cares about, respects, and trusts each other. And I'm very, very glad that Commonweal is a small part of that community. So, Mark, thank you very much.